Chapter two of Biographia Literaria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Biographia Literaria by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Chapter two. Supposed irritability of men of genius brought to the test of facts. Causes and occasions of the charge. Its injustice. I have often thought that it would be neither uninstructive nor unamusing to analyse, and bring forward into distinct consciousness, that complex feeling with which readers in general take part against the author in favour of the critic, and the readiness with which they apply to all poets the old sarcasm of Horace upon the scribblers of his time, genus irritabile vatum, a debility and dimness of the imaginative power, and a consequent necessity of reliance on the immediate impressions of the senses do, we know well, render the mind liable to superstition and fanaticism. Having a deficient portion of internal and proper warmth, minds of this class seek in the crowd circumfana for a warmth in common which they do not possess singly. Cold and phlegmatic in their own nature, like damp hay, they heat and inflame by co or like bees become restless and irritable through the increased temperature of collected multitudes. Hence the German word for fanaticism, such at least was its original import, is derived from the swarming of bees, namely, schwermen, schwarmere, the passion being in an inverse proportion to the insight, that the more vivid, as this the less distinct, anger is the inevitable consequence. The absence of all foundation within their own minds for that, which they yet believe both true and indispensable to their safety and happiness, cannot but produce an uneasy state of feeling, an involuntary sense of fear, from which nature has no means of rescuing herself but by anger. Experience informs us that the first defence of weak minds is to recriminate. There is no philosopher but sees that rage and fear are one disease, though that may burn and this may freeze, they are both alike the ache. But where the ideas are vivid, and there exists an endless power of combining and modifying them, the feelings and affections blend more easily and intimately with these ideal creations than with the objects of the senses. The mind is affected by thoughts rather than by things, and only then feels the requisite interest even for the most important events and accidents, when by means of meditation they have passed into thoughts. The sanity of the mind is between superstition with fanaticism on the one hand, and enthusiasm with indifference and a diseased slowness to action on the other. For the conceptions of the mind may be so vivid and adequate as to preclude that impulse to the realising of them, which is strongest and most restless in those who possess more than mere talent, or the faculty of appropriating and applying the knowledge of others, yet still want something of the creative and self-sufficing power of absolute genius. For this reason, therefore, they are men of commanding genius, while the former rest content between thought and reality, as it were in an intermundium of which their own living spirit supplies the substance, and their imagination the ever-varying form, the latter must impress their preconceptions on the world without, in order to present them back to their own view with the satisfying degree of clearness, distinctness, and individuality. These in tranquil times are formed to exhibit a perfect poem in palace, or temple, or landscape garden, or a tale of romance in canals that join sea with sea, or in walls of rock, which shouldering back the billows imitate the power and supply the benevolence of nature to sheltered navies, or in aqueducts that, arching the wide vale from mountain to mountain, give a palmyra to the desert. But alas, in times of tumult, they are the men destined to come forth as the shaping spirit of ruin, to destroy the wisdom of ages in order to substitute the fancies of a day, and to change kings and kingdoms as the wind shifts and shapes the clouds. 
The records of biography seem to confirm this theory. The men of the greatest genius, as far as we can judge from their own works, or from the accounts of their contemporaries, appear to have been of calm and tranquil temper in all that related to themselves. In the inward assurance of permanent fame they seem to have been either indifferent or resigned with regard to immediate reputation. Through all the works of Chaucer there reigns a cheerfulness, a manly hilarity, which makes it almost impossible to doubt a correspondent habit of feeling in the author himself. Shakespeare's evenness and sweetness of temper were almost proverbial in his own age. That this did not arise from ignorance of his own comparative greatness, we have abundant proof in his sonnets, which could scarcely have been known to Pope when he asserted that our great bard grew immortal in his own despite. Epistle to Augustus. Speaking of one whom he had celebrated, and contrasting the duration of his works with that of his personal existence, Shakespeare adds, Your name from hence immortal life shall have, though I once gone to all the world must die. The earth can yield me but a common grave, when you entombed in men's eyes shall lie. Your monument shall be my gentle verse, which eyes not yet created shall o'er-read, and tongues to be your being shall rehearse, when all the breathers of this world are dead. You still shall live, such virtue hath my pen, where breath most breathes, e'en in the mouth of men. Sonnet 81 I have taken the first that occurred, but Shakespeare's readiness to praise his rivals, or a plainer, and the confidence of his own equality with those whom he deemed most worthy of his praise, are alike manifested in another sonnet. Was it the proud full sail of his great verse, bound for the praise of all too precious you, that did my ripe thoughts in my brain in hearse, making their tomb the womb wherein they grew? Was it his spirit, by spirits taught to write, above a mortal pitch that struck me dead? No, neither he, nor his compeers by night, giving him aid, my verse astonished. He, nor that affable familiar ghost, which nightly gulls him with intelligence, as victors of my silence cannot boast. I was not sick of any fear from thence. But when your countenance filled up his line, then lacked I matter, that enfeebled mine. Sonnet 86 In Spencer, indeed, we trace a mind constitutionally tender, delicate, and in comparison with his three great compeers, I had almost said, effeminate, and this additionally saddened by the unjust persecution of Burley, and the severe calamities which overwhelmed his latter days. These causes have diffused over all his compositions a melancholy grace, and have drawn forth occasional strains, the more pathetic from their gentleness. But nowhere do we find the least trace of irritability, and still less of quarrelsome or affected contempt of his censurers. The same calmness and even greater self-possession may be affirmed of Milton, as far as his poems and poetic character are concerned. He reserved his anger for the enemies of religion, freedom, and his country. My mind is not capable of forming a more august conception than arises from the contemplation of this great man in his latter days, poor, sick, old, blind, slandered, persecuted, darkness before, and danger's voice behind, in an age in which he was as little understood by the party for whom, as by that against whom, he had contended, and among men before whom he strode so far as to dwarf himself by the distance, yet still listening to the music of his own thoughts, or if additionally cheered, yet cheered only by the prophetic faith of two or three solitary individuals, he did nevertheless argue not against heaven's hand or will, nor bait a jot of heart or hope, but still bore up and steered right onward. From others only do we derive our knowledge that Milton in his latter day had his scorners and detractors, and even in his day of youth and hope, that he had enemies would have been unknown to us, had they not been likewise the enemies of his country. I am well aware that in advanced stages of literature, when there exist many and excellent models, a high degree of talent combined with taste and judgment, and employed in works of imagination, 
will acquire for a man the name of a great genius though even that analogon of genius which in certain states of society may even render his writings more popular than the absolute reality could have done would be sought for in vain in the mind and temper of the author himself yet even in instances of this kind a close examination will often detect that the irritability which has been attributed to the author's genius as its cause did really originate in an ill conformation of body obtuse pain or constitutional defect of pleasurable sensation what is charged to the author belongs to the man who would probably have been still more impatient but for the humanizing influences of the very pursuit which yet bears the blame of his irritability how then are we to explain the easy credence generally given to this charge if the charge itself be not as i have endeavoured to show supported by experience this seems to me of no very difficult solution in whatever country literature is widely diffused there will be many who mistake an intense desire to possess the reputation of poetic genius for the actual powers and original tendencies which constitute it but men whose dearest wishes are fixed on objects wholly out of their own power become in all cases more or less impatient and prone to anger besides though it may be paradoxical to assert that a man can know one thing and believe the opposite yet assuredly a vain person may have so habitually indulged the wish and persevered in the attempt to appear what he is not as to become himself one of his own proselytes still as this counterfeit and artificial persuasion must differ even in the person's own feelings from a real sense of inward power what can be more natural than that this difference should betray itself in suspicious and jealous irritability even as the flowery sod which covers a hollow may be often detected by its shaking and trembling but alas the multitude of books and the general diffusion of literature have produced other and more lamentable effects in the world of letters and such as are abundant to explain though by no means to justify the contempt with which the best grounded complaints of injured genius are rejected as frivolous or entertained as matter of merriment in the days of chaucer and gar our language might with due allowance for the imperfections of a simile be compared to a wilderness of vocal reeds from which the favourites only of pan or apollo could construct even the rude syrinx and from this the constructors alone could elicit strains of music but now partly by the labours of successive poets and in part by the more artificial state of society and social intercourse language mechanised as it were into a barrel-organ supplies at once both instrument and tune thus even the deaf may play so as to delight the many sometimes for it is with similes as it is with jests at a wine-table one is sure to suggest another i have attempted to illustrate the present state of our language in its relation to literature by a press-room of larger and smaller stereotype pieces which in the present anglo-gallican fashion of unconnected epigrammatic periods it requires but an ordinary portion of ingenuity to vary indefinitely and yet still produce something which if not sense will be so like it as to do as well perhaps better for it spares the reader the trouble of thinking prevents vacancy while it indulges indolence and secures the memory from all danger of an intellectual plethora hence of all trades literature at present demands the least talent or information and of all modes of literature the manufacturing of poems the difference indeed between these and the works of genius is not less than between an egg and an egg-shell yet at a distance they both look alike now it is no less remarkable than true with how little examination works of polite literature are commonly perused not only by the mass of readers but by men of first-rate ability till some accident or chance discussion have roused their attention and put them on their guard and hence individuals below mediocrity not less in natural power than in acquired knowledge nay bunglers who have failed in the lowest mechanic crafts and whose presumption is in due proportion to their want of sense and sensibility men who being first scribblers from idleness and ignorance next become libellers from envy and malevolence 
have been able to drive a successful trade in the employment of the booksellers nay have raised themselves into temporary name and reputation with the public at large by that most powerful of all adulation the appeal to the bad and malignant passions of mankind but as it is the nature of scorn envy and all malignant propensities to require a quick change of objects such writers are sure sooner or later to awake from their dream of vanity to disappointment and neglect with embittered and envenomed feelings even during their short-lived success sensible in spite of themselves on what a shifting foundation it rests they resent the mere refusal of praise as a robbery and at the justice censures kindle at once into violent and undisciplined abuse till the acute disease changing into chronicle the more deadly as the less violent they become the fit instruments of literary detraction and moral slander they are then no longer to be questioned without exposing the complainant to ridicule because forsooth they are anonymous critics and authorised in andrew marvell's phrase as synodical individuals to speak of themselves plurali majestatico as if literature formed a caste like that of the paris and hindustan who however maltreated must not dare to deem themselves wronged as if that which in all other cases adds a deeper dye to slander the circumstance of its being anonymous here acted only to make the slanderer inviolable thus in part from the accidental tempers of individuals men of undoubted talent but not men of genius tempers rendered yet more irritable by their desire to appear men of genius but still more effectively by the excesses of the mere counterfeits both of talent and genius the number too being so incomparably greater of those who are thought to be than of those who really are men of genius and in part from the natural but not therefore the less partial and unjust distinction made by the public itself between literary and all other property i believe the prejudice to have arisen which considers an unusual irascibility concerning the reception of its products as characteristic of genius it might correct the moral feelings of a numerous class of readers to suppose a review set on foot the object of which should be to criticise all the chief works presented to the public by our ribbon-weavers calico-printers cabinet-makers and china manufacturers which should be conducted in the same spirit and take the same freedom with personal character as our literary journals they would scarcely i think deny their belief not only that the genus irritabile would be found to include many other species besides that of bards but that the irritability of trade would soon reduce the resentments of poets into mere shadow fights in the comparison or is wealth the only rational object of human interest or even if this were admitted has the poet no property in his works or is it a rare or culpable case that he who serves at the altar of the muses should be compelled to derive his maintenance from the altar when too he has perhaps deliberately abandoned the fairest prospects of rank and opulence in order to devote himself an entire and undistracted man to the instruction or refinement of his fellow-citizens or should we pass by all higher objects and motives all disinterested benevolence and even that ambition of lasting praise which is at once the crutch and ornament which at once supports and betrays the infirmity of human virtue is the character and property of the man who labours for our intellectual pleasures less entitled to a share of our fellow-feeling than that of the wine-merchant or milliner sensibility indeed both quick and deep is not only a characteristic feature but may be deemed a component part of genius but it is not less an essential mark of true genius that its sensibility is excited by any other cause more powerfully than by its own personal interests for this plain reason that the man of genius lives most in the ideal world in which the present is still constituted by the future or the past and because his feelings have been habitually associated with thoughts and images to the number clearness and vivacity of which the sensation of self is always in an inverse proportion and yet should he perchance have occasion to repel some false charge or to rectify some erroneous censure nothing is more common than for the many to mistake the general liveliness of his manner and language 
whatever is the subject, for the effects of peculiar irritation from its accidental relation to himself. For myself, if from my own feelings, or from the less suspicious test of the observations of others, I had been made aware of any literary testiness or jealousy, I trust that I should have been, however, neither silly nor arrogant enough to have burthened the imperfection on genius. But an experience, and I should not need documents in abundance to prove my words if I added, a tried experience of twenty years has taught me that the original sin of my character consists in a careless indifference to public opinion, and to the attacks of those who influence it that praise and admiration have become yearly less and less desirable except as marks of sympathy nay that it is difficult and distressing to me to think with any interest even about the sale and profit of my works important as in my present circumstances such considerations must needs be yet it never occurred to me to believe or fancy that the quantum of intellectual power bestowed on me by nature or education was in any way connected with this habit of my feelings or that it needed any other parents or fosterers than constitutional indolence aggravated into languor by ill-health the accumulating embarrassments of procrastination the mental cowardice which is the inseparable companion of procrastination and which makes us anxious to think and converse on anything rather than on what concerns ourselves in fine all those close vexations whether chargeable on my faults or my fortunes which leave me but little grief to spare for evils comparatively distant and alien indignation at literary wrongs i leave to men born under happier stars i cannot afford it but so far from condemning those who can i deem it a writer's duty and think it creditable to his heart to feel and express a resentment proportioned to the grossness of the provocation and the importance of the object there is no profession on earth which requires an attention so early so long or so unintermitting as that of poetry and indeed as that of literary composition in general if it be such as at all satisfies the demands both of taste and of sound logic how difficult and delicate a task even the mere mechanism of verses may be conjectured from the failure of those who have attempted poetry late in life where then a man has from his earliest youth devoted his whole being to an object which by the admission of all civilized nations in all ages is honourable as a pursuit and glorious as an attainment what of all that relates to himself and his family if only we accept his moral character can have fairer claims to his protection or more authorised acts of self-defence than the elaborate products of his intellect and intellectual industry prudence itself would command us to show even if defect or diversion of natural sensibility had prevented us from feeling a due interest and qualified anxiety for the offspring and representatives of our nobler being i know it alas by woeful experience i have laid too many eggs in the hot sands of this wilderness the world with ostrich carelessness and ostrich oblivion the greater part indeed have been trod underfoot and are forgotten but yet no small number have crept forth into life some to furnish feathers for the caps of others and still more to plume the shafts in the quivers of my enemies of them that unprovoked have lain in wait against my soul sic vos non vobis mellificatis apes chapter two